Hey everyone, welcome to Comedy History 101. This is Harmon. We're ready to school you in comedy. Today, we have a brand spanking new episode for you. We're going to be talking to Art Bell, the man who pitched the idea to HBO that begot Comedy Central. Yes, this is going to be the origin story of Comedy Central. Art spent eight years working for Comedy Central, and he was the man in charge of programming at the network. And we're going to do a deep dive into that comedy history. We got tales of the origin story of Mystery Science Theater, South Park, The Daily Show. Also, the early, early careers of Jon Stewart, Mark Maron, and Bill Maher. All in one episode. Art also has a new book out called Constant Comedy. How I started Comedy Central and lost my sense of humor. But before we jump into the episode, oh boy, oh boy, we have a lot of things to plug here. Okay, hold on. Let's get through this. On Friday, today, June 11th, 7.30 at the Asylum Theater in New York City, I am producing my show, The Muff, a parody show of The Moth. You know The Moth. It's everyone's favorite storytelling show to love or hate. My show, The Moth, parodies all aspects that you would see at The Moth. Yes, that's how that goes. Okay, let's let's keep going here. Let's keep going here. On Tuesday, June 15th at 5 p.m., our film Betrayal is screening at the Tribeca Film Festival. And fortunately or unfortunately, it's already sold out, but there still might be some tickets available. People, it's sold out and on Staten Island. There you go. That's something. And lastly, on Friday, June 18th, 7 p.m. at the Red Room in the Lower East Side of New York City, I will be presenting my show, Tale, New York City's Finest Storytelling. We have been on a heck of a hiatus, people, and we are going to be bringing you the best in New York storytelling. Also, take some time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101, wherever you get your podcasts, or via our website, ComedyHistory101.com. And now, without further ado... You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. Good thing about doing comedy in Russia, you have captured the audience. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. Comedy History 101. Are you from Brooklyn originally? I am not. I am from New Jersey. It's really, it's like 90 degrees today. So I've shut down all the windows in air conditioning for best audio quality, but for personal comfort quality, a uh, little, little bit schwitzy here today. But I'm excited to talk to you and, uh, you know, do a deep dive into the origin story of Comedy Central and, you know, talk more about your book. Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central, and Lost My Sense of Humor. Um, I guess just as a jumping off point, did have you gotten your sense of humor back? <laughs> I lost my sense of humor only briefly, and that was during the first year after we launched. Um, but I did want to make that point that I, um, I had a tough time that first year. And then Comedy Central, you know, was not launched out of a canon fully formed and incredibly successful. The way a lot of people think it is, you know, I mean, it, it, it almost didn't make it. So, so with the, the, the year that, was it the year that you pitched it or is it the year that it launched was 1988? It, it launched in 1988, um, at the end of the year. Yeah. It was really, it was really just after launch that things started to go south pretty fast. <laughs> Actually, they started to go south before we launched because we had a programming um, crisis of sorts. We had all this programming that we ended up not being able to use. And we mm-hmm. only found that out about eight weeks before we launched. And that put everybody into, you know, kind of a panic, including me and my staff. But I said, yes. hey, look, we'll just go to plan B, you know, and plan B was non-existent at that moment. But we figured something out and we launched. But, you know, we launched very thin on programming and we got creamed by the press. That's interesting. So you had like a full kind of, uh, you know, schedule 
all planned out. And then somehow that got nixed at the last moment. So um, just second part to that question, if it, the answer is yes, what what was lost to history um, that was in the original scheduling? Here's what here's what happened. We originally planned to launch. This is Comedy Channel now. I was at HBO. I pitched them on a 24-hour comedy channel, which they originally told me was a bad idea, a stupid idea, actually, um, and because uh, nobody wanted to watch that much comedy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I kind of agreed, but I said, that's not the point. But anyway, um, so uh, one of the big problems with launching any channel in those days was that it was very expensive. You couldn't launch, you know, it wasn't digital. You had to, you needed satellite equipment, you needed infrastructure, you needed all kinds of stuff that was expensive. And programming was expensive, and that was one of the reasons people didn't want to launch a comedy network. So I went in with an idea that was that was a little bit different. I said, let's do short-form comedy instead of long-form comedy, just long-form comedy. We'll have a right. lot of short-form comedy, meaning clips from movies, television shows, anything funny, any funny scenes from those shows. And the way we'll get away with it is... We'll, um, you know, we'll promote it. We'll promote the movie that the clip is from. And in order to do that, we had to get permission from the studios, the movie studios, and the guilds, the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild. Everybody was all excited about it because they said, hey, great, new promotion, you know. Um, And they all said yes. And then about eight weeks before we launched, after we had clipped thousands of clips from movies and Mm -hmm. television, we also had uh, um, short form, like Three Stooges shorts and, you know, shorts that were made, Abbott Costello shorts, all those kinds of things. We had all that. Um, and about eight weeks before, the Directors Guild called and said, you know what? We just had a board meeting and one of our members decided he didn't like this whole idea. So we're withdrawing our permission. So you can imagine my disappointment. We had a huge room full of clips ready to go. Yeah. And 95% of them we couldn't use. Yeah. I mean, essentially you were pre uh, date, not pre predicting. Yeah. I mean, you, you saw what was coming to be like on YouTube, you know, and Tosh 2.0, if you go comedy central ish. That's, you know, that's, that's right. And that's been said to me a lot recently. And even over the last five or 10 years that, you know, what we were trying to do has, yeah. has actually shown up. And nobody has, nobody needs permission anymore. They do need permission, but they just don't ask for it or get it. Um, but in those days, we were, you know, we were HBO. It was launched by HBO, big company, and we couldn't, uh, we couldn't break any laws or, you know, take any copyrights because then people would take ours. That was the feeling, you know. If HBO played dirty with, with stealing content, then people would take HBO's content. And then how did you do like a three, uh, 180, like and at like the zero hour and what programming, you know, like they, on MTV, we know what the first MTV video was, uh, a video killed the radio star. We flipped the switch on comedy central. What was the first show? Well, actually the first thing we did was we did a countdown, um, from 10 and, uh, Milton Berle <laughs> was one. And we did, you know, we did the countdown with famous comedians. And the first clip was something from now for something completely different from uh, Monty Python. You know, you asked, you asked a lot of questions in there. How did we do a 180? One of the things that um, luckily had shown up before we launched was Mystery Science Theater 3000. Now that's a, you know, it, 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 we'd never heard of it. It wasn't even out. It was it was being done by a bunch of guys at a UHF station in Minneapolis for fun. Joel Hodgson yeah. had walked in with a couple of puppets and said, hey, you know, I think we should sit in front of a screen and uh, make jokes, and I think that'll be really fun. And that's what they were doing. So amazingly, they sent us a tape with a letter that said, hey, we hear you guys are launching a comedy network. Is this something you might be interested in? And of course, it was. <laughs> we flew out there the next day and made a deal with these guys, and that's how Mystery Science Theater 3000 was uh, became the cult hit that it became pretty quickly for us. So they didn't have like a formal pitch meeting; they just literally just sent you a like a VHS copy of a tape in the mail. And it, you know, again, back in those days, it just you know that's what got the attention. Like, or did they go through agents or anything like that, or? Agents, no, no, no. We, we, honestly, that is the story. There's actually a little bit more backstory to that, and that is 
that, you know, a few weeks before that, we started um, talking about other kinds of programming we were going to have on, on the Comedy Channel. And our head writer, Eddie Gordetsky, who's still writing in L.A. today, he's a, he's a sitcom writer, um, very funny guy. He said, he comes in, he talked funny. He comes in, he says, hey, what we really need is we need a show where comedians watch television and the movies and make jokes. <laughs> and we said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, Eddie. Um, and so everybody started working on that show. And then miraculously, as I said, you know, some intern or somebody walks walk in with a tape saying, hey, we just got this in the mail. And, uh, yeah, there was there was really no middlemen involved. We just and, – and we flew out. We high-fived and made a deal. And I got to meet all the guys. And uh, it was a great day for comedy, I think, when we, uh, when we signed up Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah, yeah. Frank Conniff is a friend of the show here uh, who lives in New York. Yeah, TV's yeah. Frank. TV's Frank and Trace Ballou. And uh, yeah, um, and I've crossed paths with Joel. So, so, but just as, as far as like a place in comedy history, there could have been another show that would have, in your development, beaten that to the punch before, you know, someone actually saw, you know, their um, like demo for it. You know, uh, it's it's the kind of idea that was going to make it to television eventually, mm -hmm. um, and I think that the good news is that the way Joel and those guys did it, the best brains guys, um, was just sort of perfect, and it it worked so well without too much tweaking. I mean, I remember we went we went to a a writers meeting early on. Eddie was involved with that, and uh, because we wanted to get a feel for what they were doing, and also. I have to say, I was in charge of getting films for them in that first year. I had to find find the oh, movies nice. they were going to play with, uh, which wasn't easy, by the way. They rejected, I think I estimated in, the, in my book that they mm -hmm. rejected one in ten, but I was just talking to one of the guys, um, and they said, no, uh, it was Kevin Murphy, and he yeah. said, no, no, it was more like one in 20 that we took from you, <laughs> because they were very specific about what they wanted. Um but uh, we went to, you know, being at the writers' meetings was just amazing because those guys were so funny. And the way they did it, obviously, is they sat there and watched the movie and taped whatever remarks they were making and also had somebody taking down the remarks. And then they just refined it from there. But it it, it was as if um, Eddie went in there, Eddie Gordetsky went in there saying, okay, you know, I can figure out how to make this better. Uh, and he couldn't, mm -hmm. you know, it was just, you know, fully formed as it as it showed up. And uh, it pretty pretty quickly, you know, helped put Comedy Channel on the map. Uh, and uh, as I said, that first year was tough. But yeah. we did have Mystery Science Theater 3000 to wave around when people said, hey, the channel's not very funny. Uh, we'd say, hey, have you seen Mystery Science Theater 3000? Yeah, so do, do you think if it wasn't for Mystery Science Theater 3000, and, you know, again, that's such a monumental show that you know if you look at like comedy evolution that begot like beavis and butthead which essentially they're just doing the same thing commenting on music videos and you know and again you know frank and trace are still like touring and 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 doing the show live um do you think it wasn't for that show that um or i mean is that what kept the channel afloat at the time not for the audiences not for the audiences but it was something for us to to wave in front of the um, advertisers and cable operators. Remember, we had to get distribution. We mm -hmm. had to, there were 5,000 cable, separate cable operators in those days. And you had to go to the one in New York and you had to go to the one in LA and you had to go to the one in Chicago and you had to sell it, you know, to the, to the management at each one of these places. And, you know, they were not, too impressed with with Comedy Channel when we launched. They just, as I said, they just said, oh, we don't think it's very funny. Why do we want to launch this? Um, and so uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 came in handy for that. But no, I, I don't think Mystery Science Theater 3000 was the make or break for comedy. We found a lot of other programming in that first year and then going on the second, third, and fourth years that made Comedy Channel and then Comedy Central what it became. We started emphasizing stand-up a little bit more, um, mm -hmm. which was helpful. And, you know, I, one of the things that I didn't mention was the fact that this, when, when my vision for a comedy network was that if it was successful, then 
innovative comedy would find us. And Mystery Science Theater 3000, I think, was the first example of that. That was the first thing that happened where it was like, hey, we didn't go looking for this stuff. We didn't call anybody's agent and say, hey, will they do a show for us? This thing found us because we were the only comedy channel in the world. And it was a, it was kind of at that moment that I said, look, one way or another, we're going to be successful because, you know, because of this, because of the way stuff will be coming to us. And that did happen. But again, it didn't happen overnight. Mystery Science Theater 3000 was kind of a, uh, an anomaly in that way. It happened over the period over a period of a couple three years, where people started bringing their really interesting, innovative uh, comedy, some of which we generated internally, of course, um, right. to Comedy Central. Because where else was it going to get done? Where else would a show like MST three thousand have shown up if it wasn't for uh, for comedy? You know, not HBO, not the networks. Right, and then you, what? What were some other shows that had similar type of origin stories, like uh, you know, Mystery Science Theater? Like, um, you know, particularly in the early days. I mean, I know we've done an episode on, uh, you know, South Park, the his, um, you know, Spirit of Christmas, which was essentially was just a tape that was just being passed around uh, Hollywood, you know, as like this is hilarious, you know, especially during holiday times. Was there was there other origin stories or along those sort of lines? Well, I think that's actually South Park's a good example of that. Um, you know, the the Daily Show, which also became you know a huge part of comedy and a huge part of comedy culture and American culture, um, really started uh, several years before that, conceptually anyway, when we at Comedy Central decided to cover the State of the Union address given by the president live and uh we called it the state of the union undressed it was 1992 so that was three or four years before before uh, the daily show came on but mm -hmm. we had al franken commenting on the state of the union address live and it it was a big deal for us and it was a big deal for comedy it was kind of a breakthrough and we went on from there to cover the Democratic and Republican conventions, and John Stewart was part of that coverage, uh, and we we sort of turned ourselves into a little bit of a comedy news entity. Now we weren't doing it every day, and one of the reasons we weren't doing it every day was because, as you can imagine, doing it every day was very expensive. And at that point, we were still pretty young network, and they were <laughs> right. The the bosses weren't throwing money at us, saying, "Okay, do whatever you want." So it took a little while. But you could draw a straight line from that from that first State of the Union undressed to the Daily Show, um, uh, because that's how that got got going. And then, if you had to draw another line, uh, John Stewart, uh, I correct me if I'm wrong, was his first show Short Attention Span Theater? John Stewart was on on Comedy Channel day one. And listen, I, I you know I'm using Comedy Channel and Comedy Central interchangeably. I don't know if if you know about how that happened, but what happened was, uh, and, and this is a brief digression, sure, but an important one, um, Comedy Channel launched, and six months later, uh, MTV Networks launched another comedy network called Ha, and that was competition for us, and we went head-to-head -head with, with them and competed for advertisers and programming and, and distribution and everything else, and at the end of the year, so we've been on for a year and they've been on for six months. The bosses at HBO and the bosses at Viacom, which owned MTV Networks, and Ha said, "Okay, forget this. We, we're gonna we're gonna kill each other if we keep fighting. Let's just merge the channels." Now, when I got that call, I was very disappointed because I thought we were better than they were, and I'm sure they were disappointed because they thought they were better than us. But leaving that aside, we merged and a few months later launched relaunched as Comedy Central. So that's mm -hmm. that's how that happened. But anyway, um. Getting back to John Stewart, yeah, he was on day one. He was on Short Attention Span Theater, which was, as I said, um, a hosted clip show where he was throwing two comedy clips, and he had a partner, Patty Rossborough, and they were on together. But you know, even then, we we saw, I saw, that John, um, who wasn't very well known at the time, he was kind of a, you know, he'd been on HBO, but he was not well known. Had a great future in television. He really connected. You could tell he was smart and funny and empathetic, and uh, and he was great. He was really great, and we knew he was going to become something.
Yeah, so essentially that what your original vision for the network was got morphed into short attention span theater, just like uh, one show from the early days. That's right. Well, actually, two shows. There was a second show called Stand Up, Stand Up, which was Stand Up Clips, which was an amazingly successful show uh, Mm -hmm. because we cut, you know, a great two minutes or minute and a half from every stand-up comedian's act that we could get our hands on. Uh, ah. and, uh, and it was a funny, it was a funny moment for us because the stand-up comedians, the comedians at the time, they didn't quite know how to handle that. They'd say, Hey man, it's, you know, do you have to show that clip of mine over and over so much? <laughs> um, but I'm glad you're showing that clip of mine over and over so much because it's, it's making me more popular and getting me gigs. So <laughs> it was kind of, it was kind of an interesting moment for, for comics. But, um, yeah, Stand Up, Stand Up was another show that, that did very, another clip show that kind of went on to do very well. Yeah, and did you think, I mean, two hosts of uh, Short Attention Span Theater, you know, also Mark Marin, who's, you know, king of the podcast, and John Stewart, you know, of course, he's John Stewart. Did you... I mean, you said you saw the potential in John Stewart. Did you, did you think back then that there was so much more that these guys are going to go on to? But the uh, second part of that question, would there be other comedians that are kind of lost in comedy history that also popped up that you also saw the pa- same potential, but didn't kind of, uh, you know, kind of fully evolve? The answer to that is yes. And I'm trying to put my finger on it. I guess the first part of the question was about John Stewart and Mark Maron. Yeah, there were a lot of great, a lot of great talent came through Comedy Central, Comedy Channel, and Comedy Central um, that we knew would go on to bigger and better things. I actually, I, I, I thought Mark Maron. He was one of my favorites, and I got to know him pretty well early on because uh, you know we end up talking. He's very smart, as you know. Uh, kind of, I, I considered him kind of an intellectual comic. And um, so we had, you know, a lot of conversations about a lot of things, and I just knew he was going to go on to do more like that. It was a little bit of a tougher sell, I think, his act in the early days. But he he found his milieu. He did some he did some one man shows and stuff, and then of course his podcast, which is brilliant. Um, I think Jeff Ross is one of the people I think of who. He was around. He was hanging around the halls of Comedy Central, you know, in the early days. And I always thought he was like the funniest guy on earth. But he wasn't doing any television wars. He was writing. He was coming up with ideas and stuff. But then, you know, of course, he went on to, you know, do the uh, do the roasts. Um, and that was that was that was a great move for him, and and lucky for the world because otherwise, you know, I'm not sure if he would have if he would have uh, sort of emerged as, as the terrific comedian he is. Um, I'm trying to think of others. I mean, Bill Maher was relatively unknown when we, when he pitched us a show. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the book, in my book, Constant Comedy, I talk about that pitch. Uh, he took us to a diner uh, in L.A. Or just, and, and said, I want to do a show where people actually talk. Because talk shows, people don't talk. They talk about their movies and their lip slap and they say stuff, but nothing's really happening. And he says, I want to talk about serious issues and I want to get, you know, I want to get down to it and I want to go, go up to the line and I want to cross the line and I'm going to call it politically incorrect and that's the show I want to do. It's going to be politically incorrect. And we bought it right there in the diner. We said, yes. We had no idea if we had the money or the time or, or, or the wherewithal to pull that show off, but we just said, yes, <laughs> because his pitch was so good. Um, yeah, so, there, you know, and we had, he, had, he had actually been a, a short attention span theater uh, host as well. Oh, wow. So that short attention spans theater is almost like who's who of, you know, big comedy stars of today. Did you get along well with Bill Maher? Was, again, I think, or just a broader question, you know, what kind of fires did you always have to put out, you know, as a head of a network? Well, a couple of things. To be clear, I was not head of the network. I did found the network. I did come up with the idea, ah, pitch okay, it, and gotcha. make, make it happen. I was kind of young in those days, so they didn't ex- they didn't say, "Okay, you're running the show." I was head of programming um, gotcha. for a while, okay. and uh, and also head of marketing, and had a lot to do with a lot of areas in the in the in the in the network in the early days. But um, yeah, with Bill Maher, um, there were 
when I first met Bill Moore, I thought, hey, this guy's great. You know, we're going to be friends. And then uh, at one point, we did an advertising campaign that I was responsible for because I was I was doing marketing at that point as well. And I, I it was an outdoor advertising campaign, so it was going to show up in New York City where we were doing the show. And I showed everybody the campaign in advance, except for Bill Moore. And the reason I didn't show Bill Moore is because by then I knew Bill Moore. This was about six months into his show. And mm-hmm. I knew that if I showed Bill Moore, he would say, I hate the campaign. You could show Bill Moore any campaign, I figured, and he would say, I'd hate the campaign. What, what, was, what was the campaign? What, 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 was, what did it entail? The campaign, it, as I said, it was an outdoor campaign, and it really, mm-hmm. it was a it had, <laughs> once again, it, it was like a bus side campaign where they'd say, you know, where it would point to one of the seats and say, does this guy's head look funny to you or something like that, you know, and it was just, or at a telephone booth, there were telephone kiosks in those days, um, you know, where you could make phone calls, and it would say something about the guy making the phone call. Um, anyway, it was uh, that was kind of the campaign, and everybody liked it except uh, we didn't show Bill Moore. We showed his producer Scott Carter. We showed uh, you know everybody. So the campaign launches, and I get a phone call that day, and it's Bill Moore. Now he doesn't talk to me very much, so getting a phone call from Bill Moore was unusual. So I said, "Hey, Bill, what's going on?" He said, "Hey, you know," he said, "I saw your campaign," and he said, "and." If I did my job badly, you'd probably have me thrown off the air, right, if the the show wasn't very good. And he said, so in the same way, since you're doing your job badly, I think you ought to be fired. So I am going to have you fired. And I've already made some calls. And (laughs) I I learned a lot at that moment. And I think um, he did not have me fired, by the way, Um, meaning he was not successful in having me fired. I I did keep my job. and uh, actually, if you read the book, it goes on uh, to describe how I ultimately got my revenge <laughs> with that campaign and Bill Maher to the ex- extent that I wanted. It wasn't really revenge. It was just sort of, uh, you know, um, I had my day because the, the campaign won a huge award in New York City <laughs> as best outdoor campaign. Um, and, and, what, and what was Bill's reaction to that? To, to winning the award. <laughs> the interesting thing is, and I, you know, again, I'm giving everything away about my book, so your listeners are going to say, "Well, I don't have to read the book." Is well, well, when I do the cold opening, I'll, 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 I'll say there's uh, spoiler alerts ahead. <laughs> but you read the book anyway. Later, I get a phone call from the agency. Hey, we're nominated for, a, you know, for an award for a campaign. And I said, "Which one?" He goes, "You know, the Bill Moore Outdoor Campaign." I said, "Oh, for God's sake, anything but that one." <laughs> That was such a that was such a nightmare for me. So um, we go to the award ceremony, and guess who is the award ceremony host? Bill Moore. Now, uh, you know, if I had written that in a novel, everybody would say, "Oh, that's crap." Nobody was going to believe that. But there he was, and he announced the the nominees, and for the first time, realized mm-hmm. that the campaign that he hated so much was nominated for this award as best outdoor campaign for the year. Um, and then we won. <laughs> and so, did did he did he have to um, announce the winner? <laughs> he he announced, and the winner is Comedy Central. Yes, um, ah. for the Bill Maher Outdoor Campaign. And he looked behind him because they flashed a a slide of the one of the you know campaign one of the billboards, and he said, "That's great advertising." <laughs> And I'm probably the only one in the audience who knew how ironic a statement that it was, or sarcastic probably. Um, but that's all he ever yeah. said about it. He never said anything else to me about it. On Oops! The Podcast, join me, comedian Julio Gallerati, as I examine everyday life, the mistakes, the bad decisions, the goals, the jokes, the social engagements, and all things in between. I'm joined every week by producer and personal confidant Ryan Lynch, various other comedians for witty, candid, and intoxicating conversation. Our listeners love Oops! for sophisticated banter, aka your mom could listen, and many feel like they're in the room with us chopping it up with old pals. You can find every episode of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Now, now, when you were at HBO, you're, you were working in the finance department, weren't you? Um, finance analysis? I was hired uh, to do financial analysis for HBO, and I did mm-hmm. that for a couple of years. And then I, and then I worked on 
another project, uh, a channel project. HBO was trying to develop a new channel for people who didn't like HBO because it had too much sex violence and bad language called Festival, mm-hmm. and they hired me to do financial and marketing analysis on that. Uh, and that was a great education for me, actually, in, in television, because I got to travel around the country and talk to people in focus groups and one-on-one conversations about how they watch television and what television meant to them. And, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about television. It was very important in the development of uh, of comedy when I got to that. Yeah, I mean, didn't Robin Robin Williams did three HBO specials? Did any? Did, were you any at all uh, um, working on those from you know that sort of uh, perspective? Robin Williams. I'm sorry, H- oh, Robin Williams had he did three HBO specials. I believe his first one was on HBO in 1977. I, I know when you watch the clip on H, it says from home box office. Yeah, that, I, no, I worked on, when I was working on festival, festival was response to that because HBO had made their their fame and fortune by putting on uncut movies. So mm-hmm. all the, you know, sex violence and bad language that was in the movie, you get to see it at your home. Um, and the same way, you know, the, the, the comics like Robin Williams, you could only see their acts in a, in a comedy club or on HBO in an uncut, you know, unedited fashion. But there were a lot of people who didn't like that, and that's why HBO thought it would be a good idea to put together a channel that didn't have that ah. stuff. No, I did not work on any of those shows. Uh, and not only did I not work on those shows, I had no, I had nothing to do with programming. But, um, so I, what I was referring to is, uh, did, did your sort of inexperience, you know, you go in to pitch an idea for a network, and I pitch like ideas for TV shows, how how do you get like an entire network greenlit? <laughs> well, let me just say it's not easy. The first thing I did was, you know, I talked to, I talked to some of my colleagues about the idea, you know, just people around. Um, I didn't really know too many people in programming at all, so it was really just people I was working with, other financial marketing guys, um, and they always said, yeah, it sounds like a good idea, but you know, really didn't have much to say about it. Um, so uh, what happened is festival that channel I was working on um, failed miserably, as you might imagine, because people don't really want to watch entertainment with no sex violence and bad language, even though they say they do. And so I had nothing to do. And I thought, okay, now's a good time to pitch this channel. Maybe that'll give me something to do. And I made an appointment with the head of programming at HBO, whom I didn't know. Her name was Bridget Potter. And uh, I got an appointment with Bridget and I went to Bridget's office and I said, hey, Bridget, um, you know, I really think HBO should do an all-comedy network. And uh, she said, stop right there. That's the worst idea I've ever heard. And let me tell you why. And she started to tell me why. She said, you know, no great, no, no comedians are going to come on this network. You know, you're not going to get Robin Williams on this network, believe me. Um, and nobody wants to watch that much comedy. And why would HBO risk its reputation? You know, and she went on for a good 10 minutes. Um, and then she said, uh, thanks for dropping by. And I, I left. And But walking to the elevator, I realized that she was wrong, that somebody was going to do a comedy network, an all-comedy network, because why wouldn't they? I mean, there was an all-news network, an all-music mu- network, and um, an all-sports network. Comedy deserved at least that. I loved comedy. Uh, and that's why I thought there should be one. So that the first round of pitching did not go so well. Let me just put it that way. Um, mm-hmm. And by... By chance, I I was introduced, I was taken to Michael Fuchs' office. Michael Fuchs was the the chairman of HBO at the time. And uh, he was also, by the way, uh, had been been just featured by the New York Times Magazine as the most powerful man in Hollywood. And so this guy was, you know, Michael, he was a scary guy, right? Um, But my boss's boss heard about what I was, you know, doing and thinking about. And he said, that's a, you know, that's a really cool idea. Let's go talk to Michael about it. And he took me to Michael's office right then. I did not have a presentation prepared. I did not have anything to say beyond what I'd said to Bridget, really, although I thought about it some more. Um, But Michael didn't cut me off the way Bridget did. Michael listened. Michael loved comedy. Uh, And I think that was a big advantage. And yeah, he just, listened to me and he said, you know what? It sounds interesting. Let's let's see what we can do with this.
Yeah, and just backing up a bit, who who like growing up were your comedy go to guys? What was your as far as like your comedy influences? Well, you know, listen, I started loving comedy when I was seven or eight years old, and that came from my uh, my attention to who was on Ed Sullivan every week. Ed Sullivan was a weekly one hour variety show, but they had the great they had all the Bush Belt comics on, and all the comics on, as a matter of fact. Bushbelt or not, I loved Alan King. Alan King, I thought, was the funniest guy in the world. And one of the reasons was because my father laughed so hard when Alan King was mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, this guy can make me laugh. He can make my father laugh. He's making an audience, a live audience at the Ed Sullivan Theater, which wasn't called that then, laugh. And probably millions of people all over the country laugh at the same time. And I thought, that's a very powerful thing. I want to learn about, you know, I want to know more about this comedy stuff. So, yeah, Ed Sullivan's show was very important to me. I saw Richard Pryor for the first time in his first appearance on the Ed Sullivan show, yeah. uh, which was which was spectacular, as you can imagine. Uh, he was, you know, he was young. He was in a black suit with a skinny black tie and talking about his experience getting beat up on the playground which matched my experience of getting beat up on the playground. So, uh, you know, uh, that was, that was influential. And, and Richard Pryor, you know, of course, one of, one of the great comedians and my favorite, you know, I will say he was my favorite and remains my favorite comedian ever. Um, but yeah, that, that was, that was a big thing. And then when the, the, the recorded, when the album started coming out, you know, you had Bill Cosby with that huge album, I started out with a child, or why is there air? Or, um, you know, I don't even remember which was his first, but we listened mm-hmm. to all those albums. Um, and uh, George Carlin. We used to we used to play those albums over and over in my house, and and my brothers. I had two younger brothers. We used to we used to basically just do George Carlin impressions twenty four seven. You know, whatever ah. whenever we were talking to anybody, we were trying to talk like George Carlin. Um, and so, yeah, and then, of course, uh, Robert Klein, you know, by the time I hit yep. college, Robert Klein was the biggest comedian uh, in the country based on his albums and his performances and his, and his HBO performances at that point. I saw Robert Klein at uh, Haverford College in, in, uh, near outside of Philadelphia live for the first time. That was the first time I saw him, and it was, you know, just a, a transformative moment for me. You know, I just thought, man, comedy, it's so cool and he's so cool and ultimately i will say as one of my heroes robert mm-hmm. klein and I, uh, I i did get to work with him at comedy channel we did our oh, show great. together he mm-hmm. he narrated a show we did on the silent comedian so i spent hours in a booth with him you know talking about silent comedians and comedy and all kinds of stuff and as you can imagine that was a dream come true for me yeah so many comedians of that era um, cite Robert Klein as their biggest influence, which is amazing. He went to Yale, didn't he? Yeah, yeah Yale Drama School. Yeah, he was, um, he was, I think, influential. And I'm trying to figure out why. I know you had Wayne Fetterman on, and Wayne talks a lot about how. Yeah, him and Mort Saul are like the, the guys that kind of kick the doors. I mean, he's the Daily Show of the day. In a way, just with the newspaper and doing the headlines of, of the topical events in a sweater. Right. <laughs> that was his big uh, edgy thing. The uh, departure was he's, he's wearing a sweater. He looks like us. <laughs> yeah. that, I think that was a big deal. I think that was a big deal. Yeah. But Mort Song, you know, was way before. I mean, he, he was early yeah. 60s. So he was he predated and he was pretty controversial, too, and very uh, cerebral. Not that Robert Klein wasn't, but I think Robert Klein had a more general appeal, especially the the college audience, because he lived he had lived that kind of middle class college educated mm-hmm. uh, experience and and talked about. It. Yeah, also one of the earliest hosts of Saturday Night Live, I think, in the first season. So again, now it's like a a nod to you know, how influential he was of that era. I mean, again, so, you know, you know, people's comedy tastes uh, change over time from, from, from your interim at Comedy Central, how did you see, you know, just comedy tastes changing from, you know, when you started to, uh, you know, your entire time there? 
Like, what would be like the curve on on that? I was just going to say that my entire time there, I wasn't there. For, I was there for eight years, which um, you know was a long time from the beginning to the time I left. I I left around the time the Daily Show and South Park uh, got started. So I saw in that period, I just saw the way comedy was done changing. You know, it stand-up comedy certainly had been a big deal and a big influence and a very important part of the channel early on. But there we were doing the Daily Show in South Park, which were completely, completely different. I mean, certainly we relied and comedy still relies on on people who have started their careers as as uh, stand-up comics, um, as you know. And um, but but the exploration of comedy that Comedy Central was responsible for is really was really quite breathtaking. I, I will say one other thing that I, I, I noted that when we started Comedy Channel and Comedy Central, uh, women comedians were not you know that was. That was not as big of a deal as it became. And I think Comedy Central was partly responsible for giving women comedians more of a platform uh, and making them more part of the mainstream comic culture. Because, you know, listen, you go back to when I was watching Ed Sullivan as a kid in the 60s, you know, you had uh, Joan Rivers and you had, um, you know, just Toady Fields. You had, you know, two or three comics, women comics who were, uh, you know, sort of leading the way but there weren't there weren't the the variety and the um and the number of women comedians working as there are now certainly and also as came up in the in the 90s and early 2000s and played a very important role i think in in opening up uh america's eyes to the female experience what it's like to be a woman in america um in a way that hadn't been done before See also mm-hmm. Sarah Silverman and and uh, and some of those people. And what what do you account for? What do you think are the best decisions you made at Comedy Central and the worst decisions you made as far as programming goes? I mean, I guess that could like, you know, have an enveloping thing of, you know, pitches you heard that, you know, you passed on and then went to somewhere else and, you know, became huge or or, or whatnot, just in whatever you <laughs> interpret that as. You know, I've been asked that before. I honestly can't remember anything I passed on that I regret or that we regret passing on. We almost passed on absolutely fabulous. Um and that was as close as we got to making a huge, a huge error. That was, and you know, the show. It's a British show. Yeah. Um, and and it, it was. It became a. It became a big hit in in the states because of us. But we almost passed on it. Um, and somebody on the board smacked us and said, "Don't do that. You're making a mistake." Somebody on the Comedy Central board, and we said, "Okay." And because uh, when the board said, when somebody on the board said something, he basically said, "Okay." Uh, and uh, and we picked it up, but that was as, I think that was as close as we got to to messing up, um, at least in during my tenure. Uh, best decisions, I think the best decisions were the craziest decisions. You know, again, the idea that we were going to cover the State of the Union uh, address live, we we had to fight to get the feed because we were not a bona fide news network. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was not easy to pull that off. And people thought we were crazy in advance. People thought that was the stupidest thing they ever heard. Um, but we found ourselves doing crazy stuff. And uh, I, I think I'm proudest of the crazy stuff that we did. Because as a comedy network, especially early on, we thought part of our job was to kind of get into trouble or do stuff that nobody else would do. Yeah, as comedy should be. It should be pushing the boundaries, which which also is just, you know, with the success of The Daily Show, how come, I guess it's more a broad question, how come there is, and, and it's been tried before, how come there's never been a successful, like, right-wing Daily Show? Is it all because of it's punching down instead of punching up? Or how come that formula has never been cracked when, in turn, you would have maybe someone like a Dennis Miller but, uh, you know, it just never clicks. Or would you pitch something like that? That, that, that is a great question. And no, we were not pitched uh, anything like that. 
that I can recall. Listen, you know, comedy, you mentioned Dennis Miller. I think he's a little bit of an outlier, but comedy is dominated by some pretty liberal uh, people. Um, and people with the ability to laugh at themselves and laugh at the situation. I'm not so sure that's the approach that the the extreme right-wingers take to the same extent. Although, I will say this. You know, you got to remember that Al Franken tried to start a network, um, a radio network, to go against the Rush Limbaughs of the world. Mm-hmm. And to, Air America. And, and yeah. to sort of Air America. And that did very poorly. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think I think... Each wing, uh, and I admire uh, my personal wing, the left wing, uh, more. Um, the left wing found its voice through comedy and and uh, and uh, self-evaluation, whereas the right wing found it by being serious and by being um, mean, I guess, in in a lot of ways. And they just <laughs> they just grooved it, right? So that's the way it is. Yeah, I guess, you know, everyone <laughs> has found their lane where, you know, uh, liberals, it's, you know, satire of the right with punching up and <laughs> the right wing is just <clears throat> just plain being mean. <laughs> the bully mentality. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. So, just, I mean, I haven't actually yeah. heard this conversation before, but it's an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, they tried it recently on Fox. Uh, what, what's his name? Gutman or Guten, Greg, whatever. You know, I only follow it through the Twitter feed. But, you know, it was they tried, you know, within the last few months, an outright comedy show. And, you know, there's no shortage of, you know, even if you're liberal comedy writers that you could get, you know, quality comedy writers. But it just somehow just it just never, ever works ever. <laughs> and you know I'm liberal. I like I like you know I used to really like PJ O'Rourke, who's a conservative. You know I still think he's really funny. So it's it's not a question of you know your politics getting into it. It's just a question of it's like why can they not hire the writers to do it? There wasn't as much of a uh, as much distance between the left wing, the so-called left wing, mm-hmm. and the right wing. I mean. Um, as there is now, as has a, uh, been ushered in by Fox. And Fox, you know, again, I, I think I think it's hard it's hard to be comedic about things when you're not really calling, you know, talking about it uh, in a realistic way all the time. And I, you know, I mean, sometimes the the the, the right wing they they. They make up the reality that they want to make up, and I mean the left wing does the same thing. I understand, but you know when it gets to the uh, to an extreme level, then you're you know there's not much to joke about at that point, you know. Um, so I think that much that that makes it harder now, yeah, uh, to do it that way. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we just had four years of it, and uh, you know, again, it was hard to top writing comedy about Trump where he himself was, you can't satire, satirize a satire that's already there <laughs> in a way. So just, just a couple more questions. I know this was, you know, after uh, your tenure, but if you were working at Comedy Central at the time, how would you react to some something like a situation like, uh, you know, when Dave Chappelle walked away from uh, the Chappelle show at its, you know, peak? <laughs> well, I think I... I think I had the same reaction I talked about earlier when things went terribly wrong, which is I, I would be very disappointed. Um, look, I, I, I've learned about that, that incident um, after it happened. I certainly wasn't a part of it. I wasn't part of what was going on there. I don't really know what was going on there. But, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to be on either side of the table. It's hard to be an executive trying to put a comedy network together and it's hard to be talent um uh and 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 to you know to to be able to do the show you want without being without feeling that you're being taken advantage of uh which i think was part of what what uh, was Chappelle's problem and certainly was Chappelle's problem recently where he said you know listen they they said they own my name and they own my likeness you know um uh but that you know that's that's a little bit showbiz, you know, 
everybody tells a story. Every famous person tells a story about the first time they got into, you know, the big time in showbiz or, you know, got a first deal that they were taking advantage mm -hmm. of. And they didn't like it. You know, the Kinks, which is one of my favorite bands from the 60s, I recently heard, I guess it was Dave, one of the Davies boys, saying the same thing, saying basically we, we got, you know, we, we had our first record deal. We thought it was great. Wow. And then we found out we were being entirely screwed and we quit. You know, so yeah. it you know it, it's not an unusual story in the in any of the uh, entertainment, any parts of the entertainment business. You can end up getting pretty screwed on your first round because you're hungry for the exposure and the opportunity and the chance. And then when you think about it after a while, and when you start putting you know real money into the hands of the people who you feel are taking advantage of you, then you start saying, well, wait a second, now what, you know, what's going on? Let's rethink this. Again, I don't know what the conversation was between them. I don't know why you walked away at that moment. Those are very personal decisions on the part of, of talent, but talent, you know, is talent. And uh, I, I used to, I used to say, man, why, why, you know, why is Bill Mark giving me such a hard time? Or why do I have such a hard time with this talent and that talent? And then someone pointed out to me, rightly so, early on, that they're the guys in front of the camera, you know? They're the guys putting themselves on the line. And yes, they got producers and writers and everybody else and the exec network executives behind them. But it's their butt on the line. And that makes them different, you know? That makes them look at it differently. Yeah. And so how, how did it all come to an end? I believe, was it in 1996? Yeah, the way it came to an end was uh, I was um, I was working for um, the president of Comedy Central as I had been for the last several years. They put in a president named Bob Creek, who was basically a financial guy, who both sides agreed would be a good guy to run the channel. But ultimately, uh, they decided they wanted somebody more creative to be in that position, which was a you know certainly a good decision. The somebody was not me or anybody else at the channel. They brought somebody in. And and that was uh, Doug Herzog. And Doug, you know, basically he brought in this team and, and let everybody else go. So, uh, which, you know, again, which happens in the business. But it was uh, yet another very disappointing moment for me to be fired from the channel that I had, you know, pitched and and spent so much of my, my stuff on. You know, I put so much of myself personally into making sure that that channel didn't die in the early days and became successful more to the point um as we as we you know got into the you know fifth fifth and sixth seventh year of of comedy central but that's showbiz folks and and you know again it was a it was a personal disappointment and and it took me a little while to recover but i you know i got back on my feet got back got another job and uh yeah and so just one one last question uh you know just from your experience what what do you think it takes for, you know, a show or a comedian to stand the test of time of, of comedy history, you know, that their art would be talked about years from now? And again, you talked about Wayne Fetterman and Wayne mentioned, you know, comedy is very much often of a era and doesn't age that well. What, so with that in mind, what do you think uh, it takes to stand the test of time? Well, in... <laughs> You know, I think stand-up comedy, which is a little bit of a singular uh, type of comedy, you know, that um, I think for that to stand the test of time, uh, you have to have the comedians telling the, you know, talking about interesting things in a truthful way uh, and, and connecting in a personal way. And... Um, so I think that the, I think that the stand-up that that we think about now, Carl and and Klein and uh, and certainly Richard Pryor. I mean, they were talking about very uh, about things that were personal and and um, and important. And again, the, the 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 women comedians are doing the same thing. I think that will stand the, the test of time uh, better. But you know, I, I I disagree slightly with Wayne and uh, in that. Uh, older comedy can't necessarily stand the test of time because comedic tastes change. I mean, I I started my book with a quote from Mel Brooks. Now, Mel, you know, he's been around forever. He's, what, 90-something now? I mean, yeah. the guy has done such amazing comedy. 
And have you watched The Producers lately, which was produced in 1967? Oh, my God. Just talking about Dick Sean. It's amazing in that amongst, amongst everyone else. You know, we used to talk about a comedy. We used to talk about, you know, you could tell the, you could tell the difference between people. Um, you could divide people into people who liked the Three Stooges and people who hated the Three Stooges. And, you know, uh, the Three Stooges, I mean, now we're way off of telling the truth and we're just into what it's like to be a four-year-old. You know? <laughs> but I think that's very relatable too. Abbott and Costello with their, ver- their verbal, you know, gymnastics. Uh, among other things, which influenced Jerry Seinfeld, Laurel and Hardy, you know, and Stan Laurel um, being a model for, uh, for for Peter Sellers in his performance of uh, of uh, I forget which movie it was, but um, uh, you know, I, I think looking back and again having spent time with Robert Klein in a booth talking about the great silent comedians, have, you know, you gotta you gotta go watch Buster Keaton doing stunts. Oh my God. That's one of my always my go to is Buster Keaton. Where I even got, I, I even dove back into his when he's just the sidekick of Fatty Arbuckle. <laughs> That's how much I love uh, Buster Keaton. And, you know, those comedies are actually kind of all right. I think lots of comedy um, does stand the test of time. And what makes it? I think the comedians like Keaton or like Abbott and Costello, these are people who work very, very hard at at their at their craft and and really put everything they had into it i mean and you you know keaton's a great example he did his own stunts and sometimes they didn't work and he got hurt but you know he he was the kind of guy who knew that if you slipped on a banana peel people would (laughs) laugh and he just took that to the ultimate conclusion so you know i think there's I, i think there's a lot of universality in comedy uh that that makes it worth watching the older comics and making and, and, and realizing that so much of that comedy not only survives, but, you know, has a lot to teach us. Here, here. Well, well put. And, and any other takeaways of something I might not have asked you about, you know, the origin story of Comedy Central or your time at Comedy Central? No, other than, you know, I, I get asked a lot what it take to get into the comedy business. And of course, I haven't been in the comedy business in a long time. But, you know, perseverance is the answer I always give. And one of the things that we didn't really talk about was that first year. I went to work every day that first year at Comedy Channel thinking they were going to shut us down that day, mm-hmm. that I was going to get a phone <laughs> call that day. And seriously, and, and my whole job every day was saying, okay, how can I keep this thing going? What can I do more of that's working? What can I do less of that's not working? Where can I find something that's going to make us successful? And never saying, as some people did, it ain't working. You know, the jokes aren't funny. This isn't funny enough. It's never going to work because that's what people will tell you when you're trying to make something work, whether it's a channel or a show or your, or your stand-up act or any of this stuff. It starts out bad and you got to just keep pushing through. And last question, Art, uh, where can people find your book, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor? Uh, that's your best question so far, I think. Um, <laughs> they, can, they can find my book. And they can find my book, which is a memoir, by the way. It's not a history. It's a memoir. It's, it's from my point of view. Uh, they can find it on Amazon. Oh, and it's in bookstores. And anywhere else you find, uh, you find quality books, online or offline. So I hope people do go out and, and check it out. I will be coming out with an audio book shortly, which I'm reading myself, and I'm excited about that. Uh, that'll also be available in the usual places. And I will also mention that we, um, I, with my friend Vinny Favalli, who was at Comedy Channel in the early days, in the very early days, so just started a podcast of our own called Constant Comedy. Uh, and we started by talking to people who were there at the beginning of Comedy Channel and Comedy Central and finding out what great things they went on to do. And some of them, <laughs> not some of them, most of them did become become very well-known, famous in the business. Um, so Comedy Channel was a, was a breeding ground for great talent and a, and a creative explosion at the time. And that's what Vinny and I talk about. So I encourage you to go, go find Constant Comedy wherever you find your podcasts.
That sounds great. And Art, uh, really appreciate the conversation and uh, really enlightened. And, and thanks so much for sharing the comedy stories. Oh, it's my pleasure. Nice talking to you. And that's our show, everyone. Once again, the few things to plug. Tonight, June 11th, 7.30, come check out my show, The Muff, a parody show of The Moth at the Asylum Theater. On June 15th, next Tuesday, check out our film, Betrayal, screening at the Tribeca Film Festival, 5 p.m. And lastly, on June 18th, 7 p.m. at the Red Room, I will be putting on my show, Tale, NYC's Finest Storytelling. And you can check this all out on HarmonLeon.com for more information. Thanks a lot for tuning in, and bye-bye. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. Good thing about doing comedy in Russia, you have captured audience. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. Comedy History 101.